Greetings, my little magwai. This is Tim Ferriss, and I'm going to read you a legal disclaimer for this episode. I don't do many of these, but at the behest of my ever-so-competent legal counsel, allow me to read the following. I'm not recommending, endorsing, or supporting any of the substances or compounds discussed or described in this interview, particularly when this applies to illegal, illicit, or dangerous compounds or substances. I'm interviewing Patrick Furthermore, as a journalist seeking additional information regarding matters of public interest and concern. And you shall also notice that we have removed a number of names of different folks to protect the innocent, guilty, or otherwise. And with all of that said, since I've covered my little white ass, please enjoy. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen in a perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the 4-Hour Body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, all you freaks out there, and aren't we all freaks at the end of the day? This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. If you liked my episode with Dom D'Agostino, the incredible scientist who fasted six, seven days, whatever it was, deadlifted 500 pounds for 10 reps and continues to do amazing work for the Department of Defense with exogenous ketones, et cetera, et cetera, you might love this one. So here we go. Patrick Arnold, 
is widely considered the father of pro-hormones. He's also an organic chemist known for introducing androstenedione, remember Mark McGuire, one androstenediol, marketed as 1AD, and methylhexanamine, if I'm getting that correct, into the dietary supplement market. And I'm going to mangle quite a few of these types of words. Now, you may recognize the name and say, why do I know that name, Patrick Arnold? He also created the designer steroid tetrahydrogestrinone, best known as THG or the clear. THG along with two other anabolic steroids that Patrick manufactured, perhaps the best known of the two being norbolethone, not banned at the time of their creation. This is very important. We're hard to detect drugs at the heart of the Balco professional sports doping scandal, which thrust Barry Bonds and others into the spotlight. I was in the Bay Area when this happened. Balco distributed these worldwide world-class athletes in a whole slew of sports, ranging from track and field to professional baseball and football. More recently, Patrick has been innovating in the legal world of ketone supplementation, and that's actually how he connected with Dom, including breakthroughs in performance and taste with products like KetoForce, like KetoCana, uh, and both of those ended up coming up, I believe, in my conversation with Dom, because they have some very, very, very interesting applications. If you'd like to meet Patrick in person, the infamous Patrick Arnold in person, you can find him at the Arnold Classic in Columbus, Ohio from March 3rd to 6th, 2016. So that's coming up very soon for those of you who are listening to this when it first comes out at booth 328. So I believe that will be the Keto Sports booth at 328. Otherwise, you can check out his current concoctions for athletes at ketosports.com as well as prototypenutrition.com. In this science-dense conversation, we cover a ton. Most of it's related to better performance through chemistry. We also discuss Patrick's biggest successes and mistakes, his path to science, uh, exogenous ketone supplementation for sports, of course, as well as nonsense in the media about anabolics and performance-enhancing drugs. For example, the Delta II scandal that came out not too long ago and lots of misinformation related to that. So... I will, with one more caveat, let us get into it. This is a dense conversation. And as always, with my podcast, with my blog posts, I don't try to put out an episode that everyone will love. There's no such thing. I try to put out episodes that a fraction of my listenership, in this case, will love and really get into because there's tons of detail in the weeds. If this episode isn't for you, that's okay. You can try something else like Jamie Foxx or Josh Waitzkin, the chess prodigy. My goal is with every, say, five episodes or so to hit everybody in my audience. But this is a very cool episode. It's highly specific, and I do hope you enjoy it. So here is Patrick Arnold. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I have been looking forward to this and hoping that we might cross paths for such a long time. I've had many requests. And when I look back at the, the supplements, for instance, that have had an impact on me, and I look at the common thread kind of in retrospect, you've had a hand in pretty much all of them. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's it's an area where I have a very high degree of insecurity. I've never studied, say, organic chemistry uh, to any extent. And it's it's kind of like Latin in so much as I've read a lot of these words, but I'm sure I will mispronounce a lot. So feel free to correct me. But I wanted to begin at the beginning, I guess, and just to ask you if you could talk about how you developed a passion for chemistry, because it's not it's not a hot subject in the same way that, say, computer science is very in, right? 
How sure. did how did that start? Well, I would say that to tell my story, I'd have to talk about how I um, gained a passion for weightlifting, bodybuilding, mm-hmm. at the same time that I grew a passion for chemistry. And I'll start with the weightlifting part because that was happened earlier, and that happened when my grandfather had a old set of York weights in his in his uh, basement, and we brought them all down to our basement, and we ended up buying uh, benches and whatnot from this uh, guy in Wallingford, Connecticut that had his uh, forgery there, and he made this really cool hardcore stuff and everything. We just set up our own little gym, so I was around 12, 13 years old. So we were one of the first people in our neighborhood to start lifting weights and, you know, really got into it and all that. So later on, um, I've always was very science oriented. My father always had encyclopedias, uh, science books, and I used to read about the universe and, and astronomy and be fascinated by that. And, and later I got fascinated by nutrition, you know, and that part of that had to do with the fitness stuff I was getting into, all the weightlifting and all that. And I got into, you know, what do I eat to gain muscle, to be healthy, you know, so I can run farther and, and, and all that. And, and later on, and I remember the first time I ever heard about anabolic steroids was a book that I bought, um, just one of those standard, whatever, uh, I don't know who, what publisher it was, but one of those standard books about weightlifting and everything. And there was this one little page or paragraph said anabolic steroids. I say, what is this? I say, do not take these. <laughs> they do not work. Right. They are bad. And some athletes resort to this, but you have, you know, I'm like, okay, this means that there's something good about it. So I'm, I'm just, then I got kind of curious, you know, and I'm thinking, well, maybe there's a drug aspect to, uh, to fitness too, as, as not only, um, you know, nutrition and, and whatnot. And, and, uh, and I was also was a, you know, I wasn't the per- most perfect youngster either, you know, and I would go out with some friends and we would smoke pot or whatever and occasionally, you know, experiment with other things. And, and I just became very interested in pharmacology, uh, pharmacology of the building muscle, pharmacology of mood enhancements, um, whether it be, uh, nootropics or, psychoactives or, or, you know, recreational or whatever. The whole thing fascinated me. So I um, originally wanted to be a, a pharmacy major. I uh, couldn't get into the pharmacy school, so I got into the chemistry department, which I'm very happy that I did because I think I'm much happier learning how to make stuff than – though you could be a pharmacologist or whatever – work in research, but studying chemistry and specifically organic chemistry, organic synthesis, you, you learn how to make stuff. And if I never learned how to do that, I never would have done all the crazy stuff I've done and we wouldn't be talking right now. So, <laughs> and, uh, the, the, the performance enhancement side of things, uh, a mutual friend of ours, we have quite a few mutual friends was, was telling me that you used to go down and maybe you could place us here in terms of where you were at the time, but go down to the library stacks and try to find molecules or patented molecules that you could tweak or look at variations of. Is that, is that true? Or is there uh is, is that an aspect of this same time frame? You're, 
confusing two time frames, but I, I'll clarify. <laughs> I do that a lot. It it started when I got my first job out of undergrad, and I went to work for a chemical company in New Jersey called ISP, formerly GAF. I don't know what it's called now. But I had a boring job. I did organic synthesis. I mostly did polymers. I did some other stuff. My boss was absent most of the time. Um, my job, my day consisted of setting up a reaction and then every half hour or so injecting a catalyst in there and checking the temperature and whatnot. So there was a chemistry library, quite significant, well, well um, kept or well stacked uh, chemistry library on that floor. And I started thinking, you know, I got a chemistry lab here and I would like to fool around and make some stuff, you know. I, I would like to make, you know, some stuff, bodybuilding stuff, you know. And, and I also was thinking about making making other stuff, which are re- recreational stuff, which which was uh, turned out to be a, a learning experience. But, um, we'll, but def- I would, we'll definitely come back to that. <laughs> yeah. we. Um, so what I would do is uh, – See, I started out very naive. I, I wanted first thing I wanted to do was make testosterone, and I started off really stupid, thinking that I should make it the way it's made from scratch, which is actually from a plant. Um, uh, or extract of a, it's it's a yam, mm-hmm. a Dioscoria yam, and I was able to get uh, an extract or chopped up, and I just made a. Completely huge mess. Uh, it was the stupidest thing to do because it, it, later on I realized if you're a chemist, if you're a synthetic chemist, you find the raw material that's available, commercially available, that's closest to the molecule you're trying to make. It's like if you want to build a car, you don't make your own rubber and make your own steel. You know what I mean? Right. You buy, you buy whatever things that are as pre-made as possible and then you know put it together you, you save yourself it. a lot of you assemble it yeah so i i found out that um dhea was easily available and cheap at the time so it was actually uh sold to a lot of uh aids buying buying clubs and anti-aging people so i was able to get uh you know good supply of that and from dhea you can make um Testosterone, Diana Ball, uh, you can make a lot of things from it. So I was able to, to make several steroids from that. Um, there were other classes of steroids I could make too. And, and it, it took a long time for me to, to really uh, get my feet wet, but, um, I learned a lot of techniques and I learned how to purify things. More, I, more so than if I ever just done my job that I was supposed to do there, because I was learning nothing, pretty much. So you're tinkering when left unsupervised. When left unsupervised, I would come and I would come back at night many times and stay late. And I, people must have been thinking, "Boy, that guy's working hard." He <laughs> was just not on the things you were assigned, right? Yeah, yeah. And I always <laughs> wondered, you know, if they're talking to my boss saying, "You're, you guys, you're there all the time." Yeah. And After how, a while, my, my boss caught on. Uh, how did you choose the molecules to create? So you mentioned, you know, boldenone, um, 
which I mean, the only reason I associate that with sprint cyclists for some reason, I'm not sure if that was in the news in the last few years, but how did you choose which molecules to go after? Well, first and foremost, it has to do with the availability of the, of the raw material. Uh, there was a pre, there was a, um, a precursor that was commercially available, uh, and it wasn't controlled that I could buy. And in one step I could make mold known from, um, I was able to buy androstenedione. It wasn't controlled. And I was able to make testosterone from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to buy something called epiandrosterone, which I was able to make some DHT derivatives from. And um, I also fooled around with some 19 nor stuff as well. Uh, Several things. So, And and the... uh so I, I've always called it, and this is again getting back to this. I've only read it, never had to say it. Uh, the androstenedione, but the, uh, the andra. How do you pronounce that properly? I have well, no I like to think I'm the one that pronounces it properly, but I've never <laughs> androstenedione. I would say, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that it, correct me if I'm wrong. Sort of came to the the media limelight with. And is that is that correct? Am I thinking of the same thing? Yeah. Well, yeah. And then the connection there, which is interesting, is that when I was looking up androstene dione, looking up, you know, the best way to make testosterone from androstene dione, I came across a a German patent from the former GDR, mm-hmm. East Germany, and it had to do with the use of uh, androstene dione as a uh, acute performance enhancer using mostly nasally, but also orally. Uh, I said that it had elevated testosterone for 90 minutes or so, and that people would have an, you know, acute central nervous system effect and whatnot. God knows why, why East Germany would publish a patent telling them the world, how they cheat is beyond me, but (laughs) I, I don't really understand. But, um, but I took note of that, and I said, "Well, I found that interesting." And then I just sort of forgot about it. And and later on, you know, I left that job, and I ended up out here in Illinois. And this guy that I was partners with at the time, his name was Stan Antosh, and he uh, had, had a company called Osmo out in San Francisco. And he uh, he was he and I were with this lock and my current partner. We're trying to make some stuff. We're trying to make CLA. I came up with a process for that. But, but anyway, he said to me one day, I want to put together a kitchen sink creatine product that has every, every best thing in the world. Can you think of any ingredients? And I'm like, well, I, I, it's something called androstene dial. You know, if DHA is illegal, I mean, if DHA is legal, this stuff should be legal. I mean, it's not controlled and it's, you know, it's uh, one step away. It's, it's two hydrogens away. And he said, what is it? And I told him what it was. He says, how do you know that that's not illegal? And I say, it shouldn't be. And and I say, it should be very widely available in China, too, because it is a uh, it is a um, intermediate in the manufacture of contraceptives and all, all sorts of um, steroid drugs. And, and since China at the time had a one-child policy, I'm sure contraceptives were, were uh, a huge market there, so – Lo and behold, there was a ton of androstenedione at a very cheap price. So, so he started to uh, bottle it, and that took off. 
and that, uh, just for people who are listening who might not be familiar with this world, that 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 would be referred to as uh, a pro hormone, correct? And I mean, I've heard you refer to as the father of of pro hormones, but these these compounds that are one step away, like you said, or two steps away, like two hydrogens away from testosterone, and so it's not mm-hmm. it's not controlled when you consume it, but it's converted into something that if you like testosterone, that if you consumed directly or injected directly would have sort of legal uh, restrictions associated with it. Well, the whole concept of pro-hormones was sort of something I, I came up with. I mean, it, it, it was a term, but to me, actually DHEA was the first pro-hormone, but it, nobody really marketed as that. They just said DHEA does all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I knew that it turned into testosterone, but negligibly. Um, But when I came up with the interesting dion, the whole marketing scheme with that is is that it converts to testosterone. It is a pro-hormone or pro-steroid. And that that became a genre, a, a whole genre of supplements. And there were, there were sub, subsequent products. I also kept, then I came up with a 4AD, which was ingesting diol. And eventually I came up with something called 1AD, which was the first one that actually really worked like a real steroid. And that's when things went crazy. That's when the money really started pouring in. But as far as your your analysis of, of the technology saying that if it is an active hormone, it's illegal, that's not necessarily true because um, it's at least as far as illegal as controlled substance goes because there's a lot of um, active steroids that are not controlled substances. Now, in 2003 or 2004, I think the um, – or maybe 2002, people started selling the active versions of these. They started selling, instead of 1AD, which was a converted to 1-testosterone, people started selling 1-testosterone itself. And I, I got very upset because I was working with Rick Collins, the attorney. I don't – you're probably familiar with Rick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we actually had he a lobby. specializes in this, this, this type of case or this, these steroid types of law, exactly. Steroid law, supplement law and all that. So – our whole, our whole defense of these products was predicated on the fact that these are not active hormones and that your body has to convert them and your body has a finite capacity to convert them. So they have a sort of a built-in abuse or um, proof potential to them. Now, when people started selling the and, – and we were actually – Rick and I were actually going to see lobbyists in Congress and whatnot because there was rumblings that you know there were going to be bills and they want to get rid of these andros and all that, all that stuff. And people started selling these things and they wanted um, in on all this, you know, let's keep all this stuff legal. And I said, guys, we can't – you're going to ruin our, our, our whole argument. And then they got angry and said, oh, you just want the market for yourself. And, well, it, it ended up being a it, – it was a fail. But I tell you, our, our, our efforts did keep the uh, pro-hormones and, and those other active ones on the market for maybe two, three, four years longer than they may not have been if we'd done nothing. So, so actually going out there and 
making some noise and it helps. And in the case of say one AD, so one AD is one of those supplements that uh, I used after seeing a friend of mine. <laughs> I mean, seemingly, of course, this isn't literally true, but sort of double in size. Uh, he was a, a jujitsu competitor, and I was just like, and everybody just was like, "What are you using?" <laughs> because we don't believe it's broccoli, and end up being one AD. Uh, can you describe for folks uh, the the advantages of 1AD, or I guess before that it was fun, uh, 4AD, am I, if I'm mixing things up, correct me, compared yeah. to Androstene Dion? Because is there like a, because I, I want people who are, say, unfamiliar with some of the basic chemistry here uh, to, to gain uh, just the basic vocab. Because is, is there an aromatase component, or uh, I'd love for you just to describe like what the advantages are uh, compared to plain Jane Androstene okay, well, I can make a progression from androstene dion, which is like the mo- Model T, right, and to to um, 4AD, which was better, and then 1AD, which was um, quite different. Uh, anyway, androstene dion is it circulates in your blood with testosterone. It's constantly interconverting. It's 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 pretty widely. Um, uh, it's it's concent- its concentration in your blood is 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 significant. Um, it does aromatize, aromatize easily, which means that it'll um, turn into estrone, which can then turn into estradiol. And at the dosages people were taking, they would get a disproportionate increase in estrogen compared to testosterone, and that would lead to uh, estrogenic problems such as gynecomastia or whatnot. Um, so just for people who don't know, so gynecomastia, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible nickname, but nickname is bitch tits, right? Because you develop fatty deposits in uh, sort of your, your, your breast tissue or pectoralis tissue, which is why yeah. a lot of bodybuilders have that type of surgery. I just want to provide a little bit of context for people. Uh, yeah. Please continue. Uh, uh, okay. So then I uh, came up with four interesting dial, which I knew about because when I Back when I would make the testosterone in New Jersey, I always had these this four AD contaminants, and they're like basically over reduced. You don't need to know that's a synthetic term. Over reduced, um, androstene down, and and um, I thought to myself, let me look at at this stuff. And I and I went to the library and I saw that yeah, it's it's natural metabolite and everything. And then I found some articles to say that it actually converts the testosterone. A lot better than androstene dion, and not only that, but it can't directly aromatize. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it was easy for us to make. I mean, it was a very simple reaction: just get the androstene dion and, and and just use this reagent called sodium borohydride methanol, and dilute, wash, and it's simplest kind of reaction. Um, so that had a great advantage and that, that superseded the interesting dials. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, people, you know, have, would not get like the, like what you happened to your jujitsu friend. You said it was jujitsu or? Yeah, it was jujitsu. Jujitsu. Okay. And so when I came up with the one AD and that was kind of a feat at the time, um, I'm, I probably would be able to figure it out a lot quicker now. It's been, 10, 15, it's been 15 years or so, but, uh, 
I took a long time trying to figure out how to make this stuff because I looked it up. I went to the library and I was looking up, okay, what other meta- natural metabolites of androgens are there in the body that could be very anabolic? And I found this one German book on steroids, and I saw this this one metabolite that had the double bond. Um, if, I don't know if you know enough about organic chemistry that there's single bonds as double bonds. Yeah. I mean, that's about that's, that's about as far as I go. <laughs> All right, a steroid steroid molecule has four rings, and then the first ring um, in testosterone, estradiol, and 4-ED, it's in the lower part, which is a Four carbon four to carbon five, which this this one stuff was carbon one to carbon two, so it was in a weird position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that had a tremendous amount, a tremendous ramifications as far as um, uh, bioavailability or convert or more or more so conversion and receptor affinity, and it also was uh, would not aromatize, so. I looked it up and I'm like, man, this stuff looks like it's going to be strong. So I made some of the dione and for some reason the, the compound intrinsically burns like, like you're putting wasabi on your tongue. <laughs> and was this – you were ingesting it orally or how are, or, how are you taking it? Or orally. Orally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is it would also burn – as it went to your system and everything. And, and I was, and as, as pure as you could get it, it, it wouldn't matter, which was not an impurity. It was a, it was a property of the compound itself. So I said, man, I, I can't be selling this stuff. You know, I'm, I, the few people that tried it, you know, just blew up, but they're like, man, I don't know. I'm in my gut. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to put this on the market. So, so I um, quickly, came up with a diol version, which was a little more complicated than I thought, but I found some catalyst that allowed it to to uh, to do what I had to do. And, and and then that didn't have that problem. And then we came out with that. It quickly gained uh, became extremely popular. And I remember going to one Arnold, you know the Arnold Classic. Yeah, the right? Arnold Classic. It's it's like the uh the Coachella of muscle heads. I mean, it's, it's, it's gigantic. I mean, what is it? It must be like 100,000 plus people easily in Columbus, right? I mean, it's, it's just gigantic. It's, it's, right. it's, a, it's an entire city of people. It's like the bur- burning man for people in tight pants with big muscles. What is that uh, motorcycle thing up in uh, North Dakota? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's that type of sort of yeah. draw. Uh, but, but it's more than that now. Now it has like 30, 35 different sports. Oh, it's, it's gigantic. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's just um, it's just not even just bodybuilding. But uh, but back then it was mostly bodybuilding. And I don't know if you've heard of the distribution company called Europa. I have. Yeah, sports. definitely. Yeah. All, back then all the Europa guys were 350 pounds and – you know, monsters. And I remember them coming around and say, Patrick, what's up with that one AD? I, I, I love it. I take it 20 a day. And I'm like, 20 a day? <laughs> Are you insane? <laughs> You're only supposed to take like three to six a day. But these guys, they, you know, they, they do what they want to. They, they weigh 400 pounds. So, <laughs> so, so just to, to touch on that for a second, I mean, there's so many different questions I want to ask here, but uh, I guess, where I'd love to to steer this for a second is 
when you're on the cutting edge, like sometimes you get cut, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. if, if we if we rewind, and I can think of a lot of examples as a consumer, not a creator of these things, but as a consumer where I'm like, oops, took too much yohimbian hydrochloride and took it too close to ephedrine, and now I really feel like I'm going to have you know die of heat stroke. I mean, really, in in, in uh, Retrospect for me, I think I was really haphazard and uh, just felt like I was immortal, which is is not the case. Uh, let's let's rewind back to the you mentioned the recreational drugs, and I don't know if this was uh, in in terms of placing it in time when you were uh, in college or otherwise. But I mean, it, did you have you said there was a learning experience there? Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, that would be back in in New Jersey. So at the time. Well, I guess just to kind of preface it, I actually, the whole thing kind of started in high school in that I was on the wrestling team and wrestling practice was really hard. And I looked at my mother's medicine cabinet and I saw there was an old prescription for, for, uh, Percodan. It said for pain. I didn't even know what it was, you know, and I say, I got a lot of pain during my wrestling practice. So I'm going to take one of these before my wrestling practice. And I did. And I had the best wrestling practice ever. People were bending my arm behind my neck and, you know, in all kinds of positions. And I'm just staring ahead. I don't care. (laughs) And I kind of grew grew to an affinity for that uh, sort of drug or whatnot. Um, But I never, you know, did anything about it or, or whatnot. But. But then when I moved to New Jersey and I had all that free time, I thought to myself, well, would it be nice if I could synthesize something like a, like a Percodan or, or something along those lines? So I looked into all the different derivatives that were, you know, um, that exist. And I looked into uh, Demerol, you know, I, uh, the morphine derivatives are kind of out of the question because they, they all start with a, the morphine type type uh, substructure, which is all controlled, um, and I found out that methadone was something that all the raw materials were not controlled, were cheap and available. It was a three step synthesis. It wasn't that easy, but I was able to um, figure out how to do it. Now I didn't know what I was getting into, right? Uh, and I made my first tiny amount and I took 40 milligrams and cause I looked up, it said 10 milligrams is a regular dose. And I said, well, a regular dose is nothing. I'll take four times that. And I took it. And then at work, I weighed it out on an analytical scale. And then I walked to the um, lunchroom and I was feeling kind of giddy and I ate my lunch and on the way back from the lunchroom, I started spinning really bad and I just made it to the nurse's office. I just started throwing up and my face was itching. My nose was itching and I just lay there. And every time I would move, I would throw up and I lay there for like an hour or two. I made it up to my lab and continued throwing up the whole afternoon, throwing up. Everyone laughed. I made it to my car, throwing up all the way to my car, (laughs) drove home. 10 miles, pulling over every mile or so, throwing up, throwing up, throwing up. And I didn't get back to work for like three days. So I was just throwing up. And I said, I'm never going to touch that stuff again. I said, this stuff is horrible. And then I had a skiing injury. Um, 
couple of months later. And I was prescribed painkillers or whatnot. And I thought to myself, well, I got that methadone and, you know, I'm, maybe I'll try it again. I'll, I'll be more careful with the dose and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take it intramuscularly, you know, that way I can, uh, don't have to wait and see. I'll start with a little amount. I won't have to wait an hour to see, you know, what, you know, what it's, what it's going to, whether it's going to hit me or not. So I took it and I was like, you know, this is pretty good. It's pretty good. And then I started to, um, and it would last sometimes, you know, 36 hours at first. And That's a long time. It, yeah, it is a very long half-life. Uh, but time went by and I guess it was about a year that I was taking it. And it was, it took months before I realized I had an addiction and I realized cause one time I just sort of stopped and I was just like, Oh my God, I feel terrible. What is wrong with me? Oh, geez, I feel terrible. And I wasn't even thinking. And I went to work and I'm like, I'm just going to take a little methadone. And all of a sudden, wow, I feel good. <laughs> I'm, and I'm like, Oh no. Oh no! I was an idiot. I should. Why, why did I not realize that this was? Uh, and then from there, I was like, "Well, you're gonna have to deal with this, man." You know. How did you? How did you get yourself off of it? Um. Well, I, you know, I was sort of thinking, and it was really stupid thinking. There was a book back then. Um. I think that guy Andrew Weil or, or, or some and someone else wrote it. But it was called "From Chocolate to Morphine." Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember it, but it, it was a very candid book about drugs, an honest book saying, you know, what, which ones are harmful, how they're harmful, how they're not harmful. And in there, they said opiates are very addictive. You know, they can kill you with the overdose very easily, but people can take them controlled for decades and not suffer serious health consequences other than maybe being fatigued or whatnot. And I said, well, no, Patrick, you know, you could just hang on until maybe medical science will find some way for you to magically get off this stuff without, you know, discomfort or whatnot. But, but what ended up happening is they ended up finding out because I had a big mouth and I was very reckless. They ended up finding out what I was doing at work and they drug tested me and they laid me off. And so I was stuck with nothing. And by that time, I was, my tolerance had grown considerably and I was taking a lot. And it was a horrible, horrible experience. I didn't know what to do. I went to, I went to methadone clinics, you know, where the heroin addicts go and they just looked at me and said, get the hell out of here. You don't belong here. I'm like, but tried to explain my story, but it didn't fit their paradigm. So. Eventually, I, I went to my doctor. You know, He took one look at me and he said, you need to go. They made some calls. They said, you need to drive 75 miles south to Summit, New Jersey. They got a place for you down there and they'll take care of you. And I, and I drove and I got there and they didn't believe me either. Because who, you know, who comes in saying, well, I'm a chemist. I made my own methadone and now I ran out. You, know, you don't hear that story. That's not the usual story. <laughs> we, uh, sounds like someone that's coming in for free drugs or something. But I was just like, please, God, to help me. So um, they did their best to detox me. I spent the first three or four days on the couch shivering with a blanket over my head. It was, 
it's even hard for for me to remember, but um, it's just the worst worst thing in the world. And it and it went on and on and on. I, I didn't feel normal again for two or three months, but uh, that that taught me to respect uh, respect drugs, especially drugs that are of, of addiction, and and don't think that um, you're immune or somehow you're you're uh unique and then it and it won't bite you especially something serious like serious one like that yeah so. yeah it's uh opiates scare the hell out of me uh i've it's part of the reason that i've always tried to well i shouldn't say always i mean back when i was in my younger even dumber years um not always the case but i try to stay away from anything really fast acting uh that uh, in, in terms of you know, no intravenous, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, I, I was very fortunate and I, I was really happy in a way when I had my first reconstructive surgery, they gave me Vicodin and all sorts of different, uh, opiates and they made me viciously sick. I, yeah. could, I couldn't take them. They made me extremely nauseous and I was really grateful. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, Tim, because, um, now, I've had some situations where I've had to be prescribed opiates recently and also have had to have them, you know, in, in, in a hospital it, itself intravenously and whatnot. And, and they didn't make, they don't make me feel good like they did back then. They, I mean, if I'm in a lot of pain, yes, they, they will numb the pain, but, um, they just make me feel kind of yucky and moody and, and, and nauseous. Um, there's, they, I, I don't, I lost the affinity for them. There's no recreational value with them anymore. Thank God. Yeah, I remember. And so the the question, the follow up question I wanted to ask was, what other uh, drugs that athletes take uh, you think have a high abuse potential or are dangerous? And the and the the example that comes to mind. So when I was in in uh, I must have been in college because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to f- afford it. Had to have been working. Was a newsletter. I can't remember the name of it, but by Dan Duchesne. Uh, oh, dirty, dirty dining. That was probably it. And I remember when he started talking about uh, DNP. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And the stories. I mean, they were told to be entertaining. And I was like, Jesus Christ. I mean, it just seems like. <laughs> rolling the dice and waiting for the reaper on like a snake eyes to come and, and, and to take you out because it seemed so, so dangerous. Uh, but what are there, are there any particular drugs or classes of drugs that come to mind that you think are, are dangerous or have a high abuse potential that athletes use? Well, DNP is probably the most dangerous one, I do not think it has a high abuse potential because right, it's, right. it doesn't make you feel good. No, no, there's no reinforcing effect of it. But but that, you mentioned Dan Duchesne. He's a, um, he's actually the guy that that sort of propelled me into this industry, and he was um, my mentor, sort of. Uh, and I knew him quite well, and discussed DNP with him, and um, and I knew his fiance also. I. And she used to call me all the time. It was a very strange situation. But she had told me how – and, well, Dan's gone and everything. But Dan Dan was reckless and, and didn't always have his uh, – I have a lot of good things to say about Dan. But 
you know, I had to be honest. Dan was reckless, and he used a lot of clients. His clients were were almost all women as skinny pigs, mm-hmm. and did some things that could kill him. And he he had this girl taking DNP and insulin at the same time, Oof. and she said that she almost died. Now, coincidentally, later on, Dan convinced her to go get calf implants in Mexico um, that ended up becoming infected and she ended up getting her legs amputated. Jesus. <laughs> and she was a very depressed, almost suicidal woman to begin with. And I remember when that happened, I was just like, this is just, well, we're going off on a tangent. No, and that's but it's just, dark. I mean, Dan, <laughs> it's was, dark. It, yeah. Dan was, yeah, Dan. You could tell, I mean, just in the writing, I mean, you could tell he was a very conflicted it's very smart, but very conflicted. He could be a very, guy. very nice person, but he could he could be a very selfish person, and he could just not care about people sometimes. And I think he, the way he was towards women sometimes, you know, he was. I wouldn't call him not physically sedictive, but psychologically sedictive, sadistic. So aside from the, say. Uh, Methadone, right? Are there, and this is related to the other question in terms of what what is dangerous uh, or or potentially dangerous. Let me let me put it that way. Is, is there anything that you avoid testing yourself for any particular reason, um, or using for extended periods of time? Bodybuilding type stuff. Uh, well, insulin, I'm not sure about. Because I have no evidence that taking insulin in a fashion where your blood sugar does not stay stays under control is particularly dangerous. Mm-hmm. A lot of people saying that taking exogenous insulin will lead to insulin insensitivity, insen- right? But I don't think that insulin itself leads to that. I'm not so sure. So I'm not convinced of that argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, certainly insulin, if taken um, without it, you know the right amount of food or, or at the wrong dosage could lead to hypoglycemia and if not addressed appropriately could lead to coma, possibly death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but insulin is one of these things that um, I don't think is – if used – Judiciously, it's not necessarily going to hurt you. Now, it could lead to, probably would lead to adipose or or um, visceral fat deposition. Fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's specifically visceral fat, which is you know the fat between your organs, which is the fat that's associated with metabolic syndrome. You know, hypertension. Um, you know, a, a type two diabetes and, and, and uh, all things you generally don't want. Atherosclerosis. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, in the, in the, um, in the context of, 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 uh, bodybuilding and in a diet that's of a certain fact, uh, type, I, I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen, but I, I'm sure if you just eat like crap and take a lot of insulin, that, that will happen. Yeah. Well, if we, if we took a slightly different tack on it, what uh, what are some of the biggest wastes of money in ter- that, that uh, if you look at just the, the the world of competitive athletes and trainers and so on? I think the biggest waste of money is this IGF LR three. 
Uh, Can you explain what that is? Well, it's IGF something like growth factor with LR three. I've actually never heard of. Or okay, I've never heard that that uh, those are those three. Okay, letters in the well, book. I'll make it brief. The IGF one is the most. It's a big anabolic hormone in your body. When you take growth hormone, pretty much all the anabolic activity that growth hormone manifests itself through is IGF one. That's made in the liver. You take growth hormone. There's growth hormone receptors in the liver. They get turned on. Your liver pumps out IGF-1. IGF-1 goes out. That's what makes your bones grow, your ligaments grow, and whatnot. And and, and if you're young enough, you know maybe your muscles too. Uh, now, back in the 90s, there was no IGF-1, regular IGF-1 available. But what was available was this... Uh, this derivative or this analog of IGF-1 that had an amino acid taken off to allow it to not bind to what are known as IGF-1 binding proteins. And the reason why they did that because it was meant for petri dish in vitro studies. And they, they wanted the IGF-1 to be free to do exactly what it had to do and not worry about these, you know, binding to stuff. And then it would throw the experiment off or whatever, right? So this stuff was never meant for humans. And but it was available, so people were like, "Oh, it's the best IGF one because it doesn't bind to binding proteins, you know." And people were taking it, but the whole thing is the fact that it doesn't bind to these binding proteins means that when you shoot it in your body, your body breaks it down almost immediately because the way your body, um, the, the way your body uses IGF one is, is actually it has to bind to something called IGF one binding protein three which titrates it, extends its half-life, delivers it to the tissues at the right time and, and whatnot. So people are still stuck under this illusion that this um, this in vitro version of, of IGF-1, which is cheap, still works. And, you know, and, I, and by now people are not really talking about it because enough people have tried it and seen like it doesn't do anything. But it's still in people's arsenal. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the IGF LR three. IGF, yeah, LR three. Yep. Uh, what if you look at the the various compounds that you've either created or resurrected? Which which are you proudest of? Uh, just just from a sort of creativity problem solving standpoint. Um, what 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 is your what what fills you with uh, the most pride? Um, I think I something I made called six oxo. You know, I was going to bring up six oxo because that was another one on my list that I've encountered over the years. So uh, please, yeah, explain six oxo to folks. Well, there's no other compound that my company spent as much money on to show efficacy, to show safety, and also to show that it was not, it had no anabolic activity. It was purely an aromatase inhibitor, an aromatase inhibitor being um, a compound which prevents uh, testosterone or certain endogenous androgens from converting to estrogens. And that's all it did. 
Uh, it, it took a, it was trying to learn how to make it was quite an experience because it's a very violent reaction. And I, and you kind of keep it really cold and you got to learn to, to add one thing to the other. Violent meaning uh, it could explode in your face or how violent? Well, not actually fire violent, but actually go out of control and, and boil and just spray solvent and reagent all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. it could, it's called an exotherm. Mm-hmm. So I had to do this in my lab and then we had to scale up to production level and uh, we got it down to where we were able to make reproducible batches, great purity. Um, I remember, you know, we were the first, that was the first um, uh, aromatase inhibitor product on the market uh, that actually worked. I mean, there was Chrysin before. Actually, Chrysin was something that I originally came up with and offered to the to uh, Bill Phillips. Mm-hmm. I actually worked at EAS for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work out very well. Your employment record kind of sounds like mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I went from place to place until I found my little home in Illinois, and I've been here since 96. So uh, I have a great business partner. We, we, are, we are very synergistic. I'm the guy in the lab, and he's the guy that, you know, knows business and he's the guy that puts together the huge reactors and, you know, and all the, all the uh, manufacturing stuff. So, but, but I digress. Uh, six Oxo, um, put it on the market and everything. And I, and I, we paid, uh, Thomas Inkladon, uh, who I forgot where he was. I don't Arizona, heard, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Arizona. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he did a study and I remember I went to a show and, New Orleans and I was sent the results and I was like, wow, this stuff works. I was showing everyone, look, it works. It works. It was really great results. And that made me very happy. And we, we, um, had to, you know, results presented at a poster presentation and whatnot. I was able to tell people about it and do an ad on it. And it, um, it became a very, good product and, and it wasn't the thing about it is that I knew that the the pro hormones the 1AD 4AD and all that that, that they were going to be gone you know they were tick, it was just a matter of time yeah it, the whole the whole industry had be, become polluted people were selling methyl 1 testosterone people were selling you know synthetic liver toxic versions and and um, in 2005 they went all, all they all went off the market, but this was a, a product which, which was not a, an anadrenic anabolic steroid. It basically uh, reduced your estrogen, which then prompted your pituitary to make LH, which then caused your testicles glutenizing to, hormone. Yeah, glutenizing hormone. Yeah, and then would would cause an upregulation of of um, your testosterone production. And that, you know, natural testosterone production. So your testicles would not shrink. They'd actually probably grow a little and whatnot. And, um, uh, the product became quite popular. And I remember we, uh, at the time, my brother, who had been a, uh, investor in our business, an unhappy investor, he, he, uh, after a while, cause things didn't move fast enough for him, he got, he got out and then he, Met some people, and he actually started the 
company. The supplement, supplement company. Yeah. So he was the CEO of – and one of their biggest products had 6-Oxo in it. Hmm. And, and, I, and I remember see, actually um, – I hope I'm not breaking any HIPAA laws here, but I saw blood work in, on the 6-Oxo and he, he got a very good effect from it. So he was a big believer in it. Um, his company didn't last too long. There was a lot of, I don't know, infighting and whatnot. But um, it was a great product. But uh, after in 2009, uh, a pitcher named had a positive for androstenedione, and it was blamed on the 6-oxone. And I was, you know, I, I had read it and people were calling me and I was just pissed off. I'm like, don't blame it on that. That's stupid. I mean, um, and then I had a, there were all kinds of theories I had that it's possible that the 6-oxo itself could be used as a, you know, because the anderson down can metabolize the 6-oxo or whatnot, or he could have been taking something else or whatnot. But, you know, I say, I know my product. I, I know it's not contaminated with interesting down um, and we certainly didn't spike it and I talk, remember talking to my attorneys and they're like Patrick you know they're taking this stuff very seriously uh, they, they had a you're not supposed to tell anyone this but they had a hearing about this and they had some big expert saying that he believes that that's, that Anderson down was deliberately put in the product and I'm like what and yeah he's talking to, to important people I'm like so you guys should be ready for anything. I'm like, this is BS. And I'm just like – and then a couple of days later, I'm getting ready for the gym. I get a call on my phone. It's like 5.15 a.m. So it's Patrick. Yo, mom, such and such from uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency. We need to be let into your plant. And I thought it was one of my friends screwing with me. <laughs> I, I said, fuck you. I, I, I can't swear. but I mean, I, You can swear I, on the show. Yeah. All, all right. All right. <laughs> so I hung up. And then I was like, uh. And then the, it rang again. I'm like, uh, hello? <laughs> it is a raging snowstorm out. And at the time, I, I didn't have my license and everything. And I'm just like, oh, no. And I'm thinking, what could it be? And, and, I, and I thought to myself, it's not the 6 oxo because – there's nothing wrong with the six oxo, so I went there thing. What, what do they think I'm doing? It, you know, it's just so confused. So my partner had to bring me up, go through the raging snowstorm. We get there, and lo and behold, they're there for the six oxo, and they have a search warrant, and they believe that we are spiking it or something. And um, I just remember getting kind of very angry and frustrated and, and uh, that whole situation turned into a, a huge nightmare because um, they were determined to not let it go. They did not understand the technology at all. They did find a trace of the stuff in there. The Anderson Dan. Yes, it was below the detectability of the instrumentation that we used for quality control. So they were never able to prove that we knew it was in there. But, I mean, it's in the part per, parts per million range, and it's physiologically insignificant. Yet, they were determined to somehow make me pay. Uh, my attorneys, Rick and, at the time, Mike DiMaggio and whatnot, they, um, 
they went up there and gave a presentation that I helped them with that totally – there were like 15 people there from the DEA, FDA, whatnot, and they completely knocked them down. I remember that the investigator like slammed his – he said the investigator slammed his fist on the table and ran out of the room. He was so pissed off. <laughs> But they all. But not only that, but they they came to town and and they visited all my workers, and then they dragged them to New Hampshire for grand jury hearings. They read my secretary of the Herb Miranda rights on the on the stand because he thought she was lying. It was insane. But after five years, no charges, but the damage the damage was done. It it took away our um, the, our biggest money maker and. Uh, you know that's uh, it, it was it was a big blow. Sounds like an exhausting five years. You know, it's it's the thing about the government is that they can accuse you of something and ruin your life, and you could be completely innocent, and you do not get compensated. Now, I'm not saying my life was completely ruined, but I'm saying that it was significantly downgraded. I don't want to go into detail, but a lot of, yeah, it was not good. What, what, um, was your first contact with Victor Conti? How did that, how did you come in contact with Victor? Well, I used to argue with him all the time. On the internet. <laughs> and for people who don't recognize the name, could you provide some, some color or, uh, the, uh, or not color, but like who, who is Victor Conti or who was he at the time? Well, he has his little slimy used car sales and mustache. I don't know. Oh, you don't mean to describe him physically? No, no, no. no. But the, but this is uh, so. You know, we we can back into that though. So you used to argue with him. Uh, what did you guys argue about? And uh, what you know, roughly what time? What year was this? Well, this would have been around ninety nine to two thousand. There was a. Uh, there was something called Usenet. Use what do they call them? Group Usenet. The 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 uh, Bolton boards and yeah so, yeah. They were, they were very cumbersome, but that's how people, you know, would chat back then in 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 groups. And there was one called Miscellaneous Fitness Weights, and Victor was on there. A guy named Lyle McDonald, uh, Bruce Neller. Lyle McDonald of the the ketogenic diet. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, uh, many other people, uh, Will Brink, um, you name it, anyone back in the time. And Dan, of course, was there too. Uh, Victor came on and would push his ZMA all the time. Yeah, and that's zinc, magnesium, aspartate, or what? I don't remember. Yes. How, yeah. Yep, yep. Which I still take. I think it's a decent product. Only because I think that you know a lot of people are deficient in zinc and magnesium, and I you know and I think it's as good as any. So, but um, so he would talk about his product and the studies he did, which were which were sort of um, uh, structured to to give the results that he wanted, I guess mm-hmm. you know, and it was sort of hard to believe and whatnot. And, and people like Lyle, you know. Who's gonna? Who tends to be 
pretty negative. And if he sees anything that he thinks is BS, he, he's going to lay into you. So he really went laid into Victor. And, and I kind of laid into Victor a little bit too, but not so much because I would read it and think, well, you know, at least he did a study. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's see if there could be something here. I don't just, don't just assume that, oh, it was fake or whatnot. Um, give the guy, you know, the benefit of the doubt or whatnot. And, and so he saw me as someone that was not necessarily an ally, but at least had a, a degree of objectivity. Semi-neutral party. Yeah. And, but, and he also used to make fun of my pro-homos. Oh, your pro-homos don't do anything. Oh, they suck. They suck. And um, and then one day I get a, a private message from him. They say, hey, tell me about your pro-homos. Do they beat drug tests? <laughs> And I'm like, well, no, um, but I, I know something that does. <laughs> now, now, if you want, if you, if you want to go down that path, um, I'll tell you how what, what I sold what I sold him at the time was this stuff called norbolethone. Mm-hmm. All right, I uh, that's an anabolic steroid that was never marketed or if it was, it was marketed very briefly, but it's mentioned in um, a lot of the original literature. Uh, for instance, uh, there's certain famous books, one by a guy named Charles Kochakian, another by Julius Vita, who wrote like sort of research compilation books on anabolic steroids. And they talk about all the ones that are made and what their properties are. Toxicity-wise, you know, anabolic androgenic ratio, uh, potency, and norbolethone always was a standout, and it's a very odd chemical. But I always knew that it was closely related to a very popular or very widely available progestin uh, used in birth control pills, and that progestin is known as level levonorgestrel. And it's also it's found in something called Norplant. It's also found in um, uh, a, a wide variety of of uh, well known birth control pills. So I knew that I could make this norbolethone from levonorgestrel by a simple uh, selective hydrogenation, which is simply adding uh, hydrogen molecules to one part of the uh, com- uh, molecule, which is done with catalysts and hydrogen gas, whatnot. So I always wanted to do that. And, and at one time, our company had a partnership with Met- Metrex. Mm-hmm. And partly because Connolly was Scott Connolly and his uh, deceased, God bless his soul, uh, partner or he was like his, his Smithers. I don't know if you remember uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, Billy was like Connolly Smithers. I loved Billy. Billy was a great guy. He put up a lot with a lot of crap. Um, but they they uh, they really liked me, and they and they wanted to pick my brain. I think that was one of the reasons why they partnered up with me. So we, you know, we would have our meetings, and then they say, "Hey, Patrick, you meet Billy. Let's go into the office." And then it's like. All right, what can you make? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, what can you do? It's 
Uh, it's funny. Um, but I was like, you know something? There's this stuff called Nebolathone I've always wanted to make. And and, then, and I just needed a uh, some raw material. And I know it could be gotten from China. And then like, hey, we got to you know, we work with TCI, one of the biggest distributors of chemicals out of China. We get you whatever you want, you know. I say, well, you can get me some of this levonorgestrel. And I gave him the CAS number, which is a number that is associated with chemicals, just to make sure that you don't screw up a, you know. Yeah, important to get that right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. You get the wrong thing and you die. So um, he said, yeah, I'll get you some levonorgestrel. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they'll get me like a gram or something. So I get 200 grams shipped to my lab, and I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm like, look, I could <laughs> – just thinking to myself, wow, you know, I could probably do a lot of things with this. And I thought to myself, I could probably get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to buy that yourself. Oh, my God. You know, um, if you were to buy a – gram or so through a, a research chemical company, it would be like $300. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You just yeah. don't. That's a, that's a serious uh, payload right there. And that's for free. Just said, yeah, here you go. Make some. So I made some, you know, I gave it to, to Scott and Billy and, and um, they loved it. Um, I gave, I had a friend over in, in Greece um, who's interested in Things like this, give some to him, uh, several other people. Um, and then, you know, I had already, and then a, a uh, sprint cyclist, hmm. actually, several, many uh, grade B athletes used to contact me back then, and I, I shook them up. I have too many stories to tell you, really screwed up stories like that. We would just go on forever. But, um, but, Eventually, no, no, there was this, uh, who came into the picture later, who was a sprint cyclist girl, and, uh, she, she took a lot of it and everything. Um, she was not very careful with what she did, but, but this was all before I even met Victor, all right? Mm -hmm. So I met Victor. He emailed me saying, hey, do, do, do your pro hormones beat the drug test? And I say, no, they don't, but I have this stuff, the stuff from the Bolathon. So I say, can you send me some? I sent it to him. You know, I didn't really know who – I knew who Victor was, you know, Mr. ZMA guy, Mr. you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, – but I didn't know he was connected with a lot of the high-profile athletes like he was. Um, so he comes back and he says that uh, – loves the stuff. And so he was one of the guinea pigs and he said – he Victor says he loves it too and whatnot – and they passed it through their inside guy at the UCA lab, who I found out his name was Victor Urelitz. Um, it's very funny, the, the whole Balco story that people don't know is how many people worked both sides and just got away with, you know, it would never indicted or, or, or chastised in the media or whatnot and that facilitated this whole thing. Now, Victor had this guy, Victor Urelitz, that worked in um, uh, Don Catlin's lab. And 
he sent us, you know, he would send urine to him and he would put it through the rigmarole and hey, come out clean, clear. So that's how he, the name clear came about because Victor Ehrlich would say your, your urine is clear. So that was, so the clear is the norbolethone. The first clear. The first actually, clear. The first clear was, was norbolethone. Um, then back to, uh, like a man. It was a wonderful woman. She looks like a woman now, by the way. <laughs> she, she's she's not competing anymore, and it's amazing sometimes how women can can become virilized and then stop and, for the most part, revert. Go, go back, revert. Though the voice sometimes retains some of the because the larynx doesn't you know totally shrink. Yeah, and I think this is just to pause for a second. So, if for those people who are wondering what androgenic versus anabolic means. Do you want to just quickly define the the difference? Because people think of steroids, but then you also hear, you know, I guess like AAS, right? So sure. when you're looking at the profile of these things, just since we brought up the voice and the vocal cords and stuff, can you, can you distinguish between anabolic and androgenic? Well, anabolic precisely means growth of uh, muscle tissue. Um, uh, that is the goal when people were developing anabolic steroids was to develop a, a compound which only grew lean muscle mass, um, muscle primarily. Now, testosterone also uh, brings with it secondary sexual characteristics such as growth of pubic hair, uh, growth of the prostate, um, seminal vesicles, and beyond that, you have androgenic alopecia, which is male patterned baldness. You have growth of the larynx, um, acne, body hair. Uh, these would be anything that's outside of the realm of muscle building. And that's something that uh, obviously a woman would not want to have happen to to them. That's androgenic. Got it. So that's why it's important for people. Well, people look at the relative sort of anabolic strength versus androgenic effects when looking at which of these drugs to use potentially. Yes, they do. But people also make a, 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 a vital mistake, a fatal mistake in thinking that just because a drug has a, um, a good an anabolic androgenic ratio means that they could take that drug at any dose and it won't be androgenic. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that these, these drugs that are low androgenic, they are low androgenic at a minim minimally anabolic dose, basically. I so see. there's, there, so there's a selectivity there that's dose dependent. So if you take five or 10 times that dose, you're going to get the full androgenic activity. Oh, got it. So, yeah. So, if you're popping oxandrolone like Pez or whatever, you're, you're still going to end up with a good amount of yeah, so, androgenicity or whatever. So, when that girl comes up to you, I don't understand. They told me it was Anavar. Right. Oh. That's because <laughs> yeah, you're taking mega doses. Uh, got it. I took you off track a little bit, though. You're talking about yeah. um, norbolethone. What? Um, she was so obviously on something and she just became a target. Don Catlin's lab 
was out to find out what the hell she was on. So they were examining. Yeah, just for context for folks, who's Don Catlin? Don Catlin is retired right now, but he was the head of the largest drug testing laboratory for the Olympics, um, you know, and uh, Olympic drug testing in the United States back in late 90s, early 2000s and whatnot. So he had his UCLA laboratory and they made a project out of finding out what was taken. So they uh, determined by looking at her urine that uh, she was taking norbolethone. Um, I forgot how they uh, – they may have actually looked at metabolites and then made some and matched it up. But the funny thing is that that guy, Victor Urlitz, who I mentioned before, had told Victor that way back when they when they started – when they conceived the anabolic testing protocol, he wanted to include norbolethone in the list of drugs to be tested. But Don Catlin and these other people said, no, no, let's not bother with that. That stuff's not – no one can get that. It's not commercially available, you know. <laughs> so – Don kind of was um, was proved wrong on that, but anyway, so they found out that she was taking it, and and the thing is, is that um, I was told, actually, I got my timeline a little wrong, but before, even before that, Victor, uh, that Victor Urlitz had told Victor Conti that they're onto norbolethone, and everyone has to stop taking it now, and I told. Don't take norbolethone anymore. Do not. Do not take it anymore. I got some new stuff. It's called TH. Well, I, I called it trend stuff, but it became known as THG or the the clear, the the, the <laughs> clear or whatnot. But but she, oh, I like the norbolethone, so she kept taking it. So that she got caught. She's connected to, and then um, that really screwed things up, and and then. The Balco thing came down as a result of uh, an investigation that um, an IRS agent was doing. But that's that's uh, that's another story. <laughs> well, I just for for just some personal context, the reason that when Balco just exploded in the media, I followed it so closely. Is I moved to the Bay Area in '99, and I lived in uh, lived in Mountain View originally, but also San Jose, and traveled to San Francisco. And I guess Balco was what in Burlingame, and it's like Bay Area Lab Cooperative. Is that what it stood for? Yeah. I, but I remember seeing the sign, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it kind of got incepted, right? And it's like, oh, like the red doorknob in the in the in the. And uh, what the hell was it? The uh, uh, not the sixth sense, the one where the like the uh, the main character ends up being dead the entire time. I'm completely blanking on the movie, but the point being, um, I followed it really closely, and also at the time was involved with sports nutrition and met athletes who had some ties to Balco, but it didn't mean anything to me at the time. Sure, and. and um, when we talk about, say, Catlin and the, the cat and mouse game of drug testing, so you, uh, you mentioned THG. I'd love for you to just describe how that came to be. And that's what, tetrahydrogesterone? Is that, am I getting that right? Tetrahydrogesterone. Ah, yeah, close. So uh, this is, this is a, a rare chance to actually correct it on this, on this stuff. So how did, how did THG come about? 
Well, I told you before that um, Robolithone was made from a uh, progestin. That's right. That's you know a, a drug that's found in birth control pills. Well, there's other progestins out there too, um, lots of weird ones. And there's one called gestrinone, which is actually not used for birth control pills, but used for a disease called endometriosis, which is a female disease of the inflammation of the uterus. Uterine lining, right? Yeah, Yeah, uterine lining. So, uh, you know, I was just looking through the Merck Index. I look at structures. You know, I I can... What is the Merck Index? I mean, that's uh, M-E-R-C-K, right? M-E-R-C-K. Yeah, the Merck Index is a... um, it's a compilation of compounds. It's not every compound in the world, but compounds that are natural ones or, or drugs or uh, ones that are have significant use in, in the industry. And it's, there's maybe about 10,000 in there. And they add ones. They take ones away. Um, so I, I go in there and I look up, you know, they have a index for progestins. And so I find this one called gestinone. I look at it. And it has – it is a hybrid of Trenbolone, mm-hmm. which you've heard of. I have. Yeah, it's a, okay. it's a favorite among powerlifters, among other people. Yes, and among cattle too. Among cattle, yes. <laughs> yes. Another thing that I do not advise kids to try at home is to take these pellets and turn it into something you can inject in yourself <laughs> necessarily. But yeah, uh, yeah Trenbolone. Trenbolone. Uh, so it was a hybrid between Trenbolone and Norbolithone. It had the three, the triene, the three double bond uh, structure of Trembolone, and it also had this weird extra carbon coming off the the ring structure that Nobolithone had. And I say, this has got. If I turn this, add the four hydrogens, turn it into an uh, acetylene, into an ethyl, which basically makes it. More less progestational and way more anabolic androgenic. Um, I do. I could do the same reaction that I did with nabolithone and come up with something that no one's ever seen before and probably is a lot stronger. And that's exactly what happened. So the really cool thing about it is that I made a molecule that no one's ever made before. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, but the thing that I didn't know, which I found out later, which I'm reluctant to admit because if I, if I just don't admit it, it would make me look so much more brilliant than I am. <laughs> but, but I have – but I'm an honest person. But I, but, but there was a – I did an interview with uh, Bob Costas and in part of that interview, he, he um, interviewed Don Catlin and Don Catlin said, you know, this molecule, it just disappeared in our instrumentation and we were amazed. We were like, whoever's doing this must be brilliant. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, I didn't know it would disappear. <laughs> Though it kind of makes sense because of the way they test it, they have to add these, they have to derivatize it for gas chromatography and it's very, it would be very unstable. So it makes sense, but I didn't think that at the time. <laughs> so they actually had to change their whole means of testing steroids. You had to use different instruments because of that. But, um, but all I know is that, uh, it worked and it worked at a very low dose. Um, Victor was using it at extremely low dosages and getting very good results from people. 
Um, but I tell you, that stuff was weird. I mean, I had tried it. What made uh, it weird? It made you feel angry. It made you feel it, – it dried you out and made you feel really hard and strong. It had a, um anti-mineral corticoid effect, which is uh, anti-aldosterone, basically sort of like a spironolactone. Um, how do I put that? I, I think you know what I'm talking about. But yeah. to put, put it simpler, basically your, your kidneys make a um, – or your, your adrenal makes a hormone called aldosterone, which causes you to uh, – Retain sodium and water and excrete potassium. And this blocked that. So basically you would excrete water and sodium and you would have a diuretic effect and you would look shredded. But and you would, would – so would you – was the anger a result of just feeling like you were cutting weight for wrestling? So you're just in that that type of dehydrated – sort of high heart rate rage state <laughs> or was it something else? No, that it wasn't that? anger. It just made you feel irritable. Irritable. Yeah. 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 Certain steroids do that. I mean, one, another one that does it is, is halotestin or fluoxymesterone. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's no, no one really knows why certain steroids have effects on the brains, uh, on, on, on the brain. Um, and there's ones like Diana ball, which supposedly make you feel good and whatnot, but you know, no one has a valid explanation for that, but the, uh, the, uh, I've heard, maybe you can speak to this and, you know, I know, I know Chris bell and Mark bell and they did the, the documentary. I always get the order wrong. I think it's bigger, faster, stronger. Yep. Um, it, the, what are contra? What types of other drugs are contraindicated to take with anabolics? Because it it seems, and I might be pulling this from hearsay, but that many of the cases of say people committing suicide or committing uh, a homicide, say when they're on anabolics, is often while they're simultaneously tape- taking say SSRIs or anti-anxiety medication. And it's ha- it's hard to say if it's correlation or causation. But are there any particular drugs that you think are contraindicated for uh, athletes. Let's just use that example who are, who are taking anabolics. I don't, as far as psych drugs go, I don't know of any, but certainly with orals, you do not want to be on a blood thinner like uh Coumadin or any, anything like that. In fact, I had a, a friend who was taking Superdrawl. Superdrawl was one of those, uh, over the counter, um, designer steroids that was quite potent. And they actually thin your blood themselves. They're anti thrombolytic. So if you combine them with these blood thinners, let's say if, you know, your doctor thinks you have blood clots in your legs or whatnot, and you're also taking steroids, especially an oral steroid, you can easily, uh, have excessive bleeding. And my friend ended up, having, you know, bleeding ulcers in his stomach and had to go to the hospital. He's like, why, do, why does this happen? And I was like, what are you taking? And I'm like, 
I'm taking super draw in my uh, blood thinner. So it's like, well, you or you shouldn't do that. <laughs> well, you didn't tell me. Well, you didn't ask me. So, but yeah, don't don't never never take a blood thinner with that. And that's a lot. If you, I don't know if you know this, but with a lot of um, antibiotic steroids, people get bloody noses, and that's exactly why. Huh? I did not know that. That makes perfect sense. Hmm. I mean, that would, well, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but, uh, I was just, the image that came to mind was people doing, uh, you know, power lifters competing in meets and getting bloody noses. But then again, they also have like 1200 pounds on their backs. So <laughs> it could be yeah, a they, com- uh, combination of factors. They are, their the blood pressure, the transient blood pressure that they experience during a lift is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, if you could measure it, it would, I don't know why the blood vessels just don't split and explode. So. <laughs> now, the, you've, uh, you've been involved with a number of different companies. I have to ask because a friend wanted me to ask you, uh, and I'm going to get the, the, is it ursolic or ursolic acid? I have no idea. Uh, but he wanted to know when is he going to be able to get more <laughs> ursolic acid? And maybe you could explain for people what it is. Oh, okay. So we, uh, and this is this was this is prototype nutrition that we're talking okay, about. Okay, so yeah. this is this is the spray. Okay. So I first heard about ursolic acid when a uh, study came out in a journal called Cell Metabolism, and and it was um, it was written by a guy from University of Iowa. He was a researcher. He used some technique that um, to identify genes that were turned on or off in, in muscles, uh, uh, genes that had to do with catabolism or an- anabolism. And they were basically looking for catabolic genes that were turned off and anabolic genes that were turned on. And they used something called a, uh, uh, some sort of a, a, a library, a database of, of genes, mRNA, expression signatures or something. And um, they use 1,300 chemicals, just natural chemicals, drugs, whatnot, and whatever. And they put them you know, through this algorithm or whatever, and it came out that uh, your solic acid just seemed to you know, do everything. The, the next, the second one, which was a far second, was metformin in the interest. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Which does is a very interesting molecule in itself. However, it didn't really have the anabolic effects. So they ended up giving uh, the ursaric acid to uh, mice and rats, and they, and they found that uh, the muscle fibers grew bigger, they got a stronger grip, and they didn't gain any weight, but they had a proportional decrease in fat mass. And, and they also looked at you know, what's going on with um, hormones or, you know, the mechanisms uh, in the muscle and they and the and gene expression. And one of the big things they found was a, a large increase in, the, in muscle-derived IGF-1. Uh, we talked about that earlier. Er, earlier we were talking about IGF-1 producing the liver, but there's also localized IGF-1 producing the muscle, mm-hmm. which is more – uh, relevant to, to muscle growth. So the ursolic acid had an effect on that. And then there was a, a second study done by the same group um, which found that it 
increase the amount of brown fat. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Quite significantly, um, which caused the, the mice to have a, a higher levels of e- energy expenditure because they, you know, they would uh, they would eat a lot and not gain any weight and run around, and you know, the brown fat would just burn off all the calories. So, so I originally came out with a um, a product which was just tersalic acid extract from rosemary and I, I realized quickly that that the stuff had no solubility in water or oil it basically put it in water and it, it it won't even wet it just you mix it up and it floats and it's completely dry <laughs> sounds sounds fun to drink yeah you can't you can't you, well you put it that's why you put it in castle but still it's in your stomach and it's just going to sit there and Unless it somehow solubilizes, it's, you're not going to absorb yeah, it. I tried to. I tried to do some stuff with. Uh, I think it was Lucian recently, and I got this, you know, industrial packet of Lucian, and the yeah. same the same thing happened. It was just like I could shake it until my arm fell off, and it would just sit there on top of the water. It's horrible. Now the thing with Lucian is that it will eventually wet and go into solution. Mm-hmm. You got to be very patient. You just have to keep going. <laughs> Have to keep going, and they have ways to instantize it. But your salic acid just will never. You can, a hundred years, you can stir it <laughs> to the top. So I uh, went about trying to find derivatives, and and I first made an acetate out of it, which is basically taking a hydroxyl group and um, make an ester out of it, an acetate ester. And then I there was a another functional group, which is a set of atoms that are attached to the molecule that was a carboxylate group, which I could then make a salt out of. So I ended up making an arginine salt acetate, and I found out that the solubility properties of that, it wouldn't be soluble in water. It would wet in water. However, it would be soluble in solvents like uh, like methanol and whatnot. Which, which are good indicators of something that could absorb through your intestines um, or through your skin. And I decided to make a, a spray uh, because I thought that, um, well, first of all, so it was a lot easier. The manufacturing method required uh, a solvent to begin with, so I figured I would use a transdermal type solvent and sell it that way and and it ended up, ended up becoming a very popular product and and it it worked quite well i mean people could really feel something from it they would they would get a within a week or so um greater vascularity you know greater greater muscle volume uh so that's one of that has been one of our best selling products one of my so <laughs> One of my friends gets ridiculed by his significant other because it's just like like forty times at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when when will when will people be able to get that again? Because I think if, it seems like it's been sold out for a while. Well, I just made two kilos of the stuff, so next week soon. All right. Well, <laughs> and by and well, well, by the time this airs, it yeah. will have been a right. few weeks in the past. So. so yeah, people who are listening, <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this first, I would I would uh, not daddle if you're uh, interested in getting this stuff because it will sell out. Uh, the now if if it's 
increasing hypothetically, and this is just a question that I get a lot, so I'd like to bounce it to you. If it's increasing IGF one production or IGF production in, in any number of ways, does that, at what point does that increase the risk of cancer or cancerous growth? It's muscle specific. So I don't think it, I think it's kind of does this activity in the muscle and sort of, you know, decomposes and doesn't really affect systemic circulation. So if you have, unless you have some kind of a tumor in a muscle or something, I, I can't see it really having an effect because it's not, it's not going to reach systemic circulation and then say, go to your prostate and stimulate a tumor there or anything. Right. What here's this, this is a totally selfish question, but I'd imagine there are some people listening who would be asking themselves the same thing. If you were, if you were, and you're probably so sick of getting this question, but I have to ask it. If I would like to get better at chemistry and understanding organic chemistry, clearly out of school, how, what would you recommend I do? I mean, like I have the, 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 cognitive apparatus, I think, to learn it. I just have never approached it in any type of systematic or interesting way. I mean, are there any any resources, any approaches that you would suggest if I want to become basically just very rudimentary, in a rudimentary way, fluent in more of the language of chemistry so that I can just just be more informed? Well, you're absolutely correct. I do get that question a lot. <laughs> and it's to be honest with you, I don't have an answer because the way I learned organic chemistry and all this was a very laborious process of taking courses and being frustrated and not knowing what the hell anything meant and working and studying and taking exams until it clicked. So to say that you're going to pick up some book and, you know, read it for an hour a night or something and then suddenly start to understand all this, you know, unless you're some, some sort of genius, you know, right. the amazing so, uh, person. Yeah. Like you learn Chinese in two days type of person. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that, that's a good uh, question. Here, here's, here's maybe a, a slightly different question. Cause I think what I might do honestly is just reach out to one of these extension schools in the Bay area, like UC Berkeley or whatnot and see if they have, uh, some type of introduction to organic chemistry that isn't going to want to make me slam my head in a car door, uh, that has, you know, some, some type of, of decent so you, teacher structure to it. You've taken general chemistry. I have not. Oh, I I don't I don't know. That's embarrassing to say, but I don't recall if I have or not. Partially because, in a very undirected, myopic way. I mean, most of what I've learned, I feel like most of what I've learned from chemistry, I have taken basic. I'm almost 100 percent sure I've taken basic chemistry and then also some neurochemistry uh, in, my, in the first few years of college. But most of what I've ended up learning is is through self-experimentation and then wondering what could go right, could go wrong, did go right, did go wrong. I mean, very, from an athletic standpoint as a consumer, I think it just came down to similar to yourself. It's like, oh, well, that's very curious, but I'm not sure the journalist is getting it right. Let me go to the library. Yeah. Let me go to PubMed. Let me try to figure out, like, is there even a plausible mechanism, right? And uh, I remember reading a story about you early on with, uh, I think it was Yohimbe and, <laughs> and like the testosterone and 
that that whole experience where you're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that was actually before the diocesan. And I, I, uh, they said that um, the advertisements used to say that Yohimbi contained testosterone. So I bought a bunch of Yohimbi capsules, broke them open, and extracted them with a solvent and got this green yuck. I'm like, testosterone is not supposed to be green. <laughs> and then put, and I did an NMR, which is a nuclear magnetic resonance test on it. And I'm like, this is a bunch of crap. And, and I realized, you know, once I started looking through the chem ab- abstracts, which was in the library that was on the floor I worked on, um, and cross-referencing Yohimbi with testosterone, there was zero connection there. So I realized that the whole thing was a lie. Right. So- and I, yeah. No, no, I was just going to say like that's – so for looking at it from a slightly different perspective, what happened with me is uh, I was uh, – Yohimbe and Yohimbean were popular at a point for – or they, they kind of made the rounds, right? I mean they're, they're fads and – uh, in supplements for fat loss. And it was thought like, well, because of these particular receptors that might be effective for reducing body fat in, say, the legs or wherever it might be, and took this Yohimbian. And I, I, my body does not agree with that stuff. I just get right. extremely overstimulated and I feel like I'm on the verge of vomiting the entire time that it's, I guess, peaking. And that made me interested in looking at, uh, you know, you, so you read beta agonist and then you realize there are different types of, you know, beta agonists. Like what the hell is an agonist? And okay, well then by learning what an agonist is, you start hearing about antagonist and then down the rabbit hole we go. Right. So that's, um, a long answer to a short question, but I, I don't, I, I really, if I have taken chemistry courses, I need a, a significant brush up, but the, where do you think, what were the biggest wastes of time for you in the classes that you took, the things that you're like, this actually had no application to the practical side of what I'm interested in. Is there anything that, that comes to mind? Well, one graduate course really pissed me off because it was, um, it was had to do with, uh, analytical chemistry, um, you know, advanced analytical chemistry, instrumentation and whatnot. And it was very interesting. And we didn't really, deal with the instruments directly very much at all. But um, I studied my ass off and I, and I wrote one of the, the best reports, the guy, the best papers and the guy complimented me on it. Um, and I, I learned a theory and all that. And the exam ended up being, what is the inner diameter of a, of a column that we put into a GS 390? And I'm like, what the hell? He looked this stuff up in a manual and everything is like stuff, you know, if you're a tech or something, you, you know, it was, it was almost no theory. And I was just like, what is wrong with this teacher? Um, I just was so frustrated and I ended up not passing the course. Um, so, I mean, the course was useful, but the, the exam and the way the guy approached, you know, what the students should come away with was completely out of whack. <laughs> but I also hated physical chemistry, thermodynamics. Um, it's good stuff if you want to be an engineer or whatnot. But, you know, I wanted to be a synthetic organic chemist. So that stuff, and it involved a lot of math. I hate calculus and all that. So, 
So, so I'd love to ask a couple of a couple of fan questions uh, that that have come in, and um, then we can segue to some of the the stuff that you're working on right now. Uh, the, the first is, and uh, I would love to know the answer to this too. Uh, this is from Michael Taphouse. When will we be able to measure our own BHB levels without blood? BHB, for those people who don't know, is beta-hydroxybutyrate. So currently, if you're experimenting, as I have been often with ketogenic diets, uh, exogenous ketones, which you're going to get into, I'm using the Precision Extra device from Abbott Labs to measure my ketone concentr- you know, concentration in millimolars. So when, when will we be able to measure our own BHB levels without blood? And I'll just modify that and say, or in some easier way. <laughs> you know, that's a dominant question, right? That's a dumb question. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so. No, but, and I'm sorry, and I, and I didn't listen to the entire Dominic interview, but I listened to most of it. But I imagine you probably brought that up. And what his answer would have been would be the, the acetone breathalyzer. And, and I, I don't know how accurate that is. Dom seems to, to think it's relatively ac- accurate. The ketonics or something like it. Yeah, they, the, so the ketonics were, so, so the Dominic we're talking about, for people who haven't heard, I did an interview with Dominic D'Agostino, who's a fascinating researcher and scientist who also deadlifts like a freaking monster, <laughs> but is really, really savvy with this stuff. The ketonics, so I have a ketonics device, um, side note, because I was doing this the whole series of strange experiments where I was uh, getting you know, 100 grams of vitamin C intravenously and doing all of this stuff. And I wanted to monitor my ketone levels while getting this infusion because the the, you can't use a glucometer, I realized, because I scared the living hell out of myself while I was getting one of these IVs, because I started to feel a little funny, and I was wondering if I was hypoglycemic, because I'd been scared by some horror stories that had, had been told by folks. And so I, I used a glucometer, and it came out 385. And I was like, uh-oh, that's not good. Because wow. <laughs> it came out 385, and my millimolar concentration was probably about 6 at the time. It was high. And I was like, well, that sounds like ketoacidosis if the device is accurate. And the doctor who was supervising me said, there's no way that's accurate. It has to be broken. He tested it himself, 80. And just to place this for people, this was around 5 p.m., right over the Golden Gate Bridge, gridlock outside, not immediately close to a hospital. So if there, if there, I mean, I had a doctor supervising me, but if I required some type of sophisticated operation, I was not in a good place. And it turned out, because it, then I tested it again, 389, and I was just like, wow, as is usual for me, and which is why people should always do their own homework and get a you know tattoo that says, don't try this at home. Uh, don't do that, folks, actually, because people, that, like one in a thousand will probably go and get it. But the, is that um, when I feel like I might have actually done it, meaning like, oh, I think this might be it. Like I finally statistically just gotten to the point where one of my self experiments backfires to the extent that I'm like going to die. I looked at it and I was like, just kind of laughed and looked at the doctor and I was like, well, that's not very good. And, <laughs> and it turned out like, uh, it, it turned out that the vitamin C, uh, causes the, the strips that are used for reading the blood drop in the, in these glucometers to malfunction. It just, it messes with the, the electrical, uh, conductivity or something like that. But I, so I wanted to track my ketones, but I knew that I would get an error with the BHB through the finger pricks, which, which always happened after these, these IV infusions. And so I was playing with the ketonics, the downside of the ketonics, and maybe there are more 
advanced versions now, but it's basically like a keto, it's basically like keto sticks and it will for with the AP on. And it says if you're light, moderate or heavy, but it's, it's no more specific than that. So I was like, ah, I know, I know, I know I'm high. I want to see how it varies over time. Ah, but sorry for, uh, sorry for, no, I, I, I understand it. And, and I'm working on improved versions of, uh, of exogenous ketones. I'm actually ready to file a patent. I can't give away what I'm I'm doing or whatnot, but we have a whole bunch of strips here and we've been we've been doing our own uh our own blood tests and they're they're vital. I mean you you need an exact number to make a, a graph. And so so let's talk about the uh the exogenous ketones. So you, so <laughs> Because <laughs> it's come up in a few other interviews, including in Dominic's interview. Uh, so keto canna or keto canna, no, tropicana, tropicana. Yeah, that's there it. I'm go. remembering it. Keto canna, <laughs> yep. keto sports. So, so when uh, I, I'm, I'm flashing back to this conversation that I had with um, with uh, Peter Atia, and he was talking about drinking jet fuel in his kitchen at one point, just like dry heaving for an hour and trying not to wake his family up. And that was <laughs> the like Model T version of uh, ketone salts that I think, you know, Dom had shipped him <laughs> in some nondescript well, container. But but you've made a lot of adva- advancements. So I guess my the, the questions are, how did you how did you get introduced to the sort of the, the, the exogenous ketone world. And just, uh, this is because I've heard it from so many people. Sorry, this is long, but it's not androgynous ketones. I don't know what it is on the internet, but like so many Androg- people <laughs> refer to them as androgynous ketones. I'm like, no, they're not androgynous. Exogenous, like exoskeleton from outside the body. That's it. So, exo- Ex- exo, yeah. yeah, exogenous. Uh, so how did you get introduced to all of that? Well, I'm so glad that I did because at the time um, I was kind of stuck in the in the whole bodybuilding supplement world, which is very limiting, um, not very rewarding, and and for someone like like me, it's it's uh, I mean it's you now I love the sport and you know and a lot of great people in it, but it's it's just dead. It's all you know. How am I going to get a pump? Or what is the best stimulant I could take to make me insane before I work out? Or, or you know, what's going to be anabolic? And you can't sell anything that <laughs> works anymore. So, um, so Dominic D'Agostino called me or sent me an email saying, you know, I'm looking for contract uh, some contract synthesis work. Um, and you know, I know Patrick and I saw you on the boards. I know you're a chemist, you know, people have mentioned you and, and I haven't had any success with anyone. And what I'm looking for is to make a, uh, what's known as a ketone diester. It is a, uh, a pro drug to, um, acetoacetate, which is a, a, a ketone. And yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I know what ketones are. You know, I know all about that. And, and I thought to myself, this is, sounds like some really cool stuff. Cause I, you know, I'd known about the ketogenic diet and everything, and I knew about ketones and and that they are a, a fuel that your body uses. And and I started, you know, doing some searches and said, okay, there's a this big opportunity here. So let me uh, let me make the uh, ketone ester for him. He could do his studies, and it took a you know a few months and whatnot. I was able to 
make some good stuff. Um, and he ended up his first study, which was the CNS toxicity study Central on the rats. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which was supposed to be um, had applications for the Navy SEALs and their rebreathers and whatnot. And uh, he had tremendous success with that. Uh, and then it went on to, that he got a grant or, or approval to do cancer stuff, and he got tremendous results with that. And as, as you know, uh, um, he's continued to have to do research and show phenomenal things with these these um, exogenous ketones. Well, um, you know, we started off with the diester, and and I thought to myself, well, you know, um, I would like to get in on this on this gig. So I want I I wonder if I can come up with some kind of a, a supplement version. So I said, well, I I know that you can make salts out of these. You know, I know that there's sodium. It made a hydroxybutyrate out there because I've seen it before, but I know it's like a million dollars. And I said, I got to find out a way to make this cheaper. And, you know, I did a lot of research and, and, and stuff, and, and I did find a way to make it uh, at a price that your people could actually, you know, afford to take it in effective dosages. And um, I made potassium sodium, which was the original stuff. I, I don't know if that's what Peter took, or if Peter took the stuff from Oxford, or it, it may have been the uh, it may have been my my stuff, the original keto forest, which, by the way, is not meant to be drinking straight. You have to mix it with an acidic beverage. <laughs> I think what he I think what he took at the time was just uh some equivalent but i think it was it, i mean i remember at some point uh i got these ketone salts <laughs> from uh from dom and i was like they just sat in my refrigerator for months yeah. i was like i cannot build up the courage to take this stuff down <laughs> he wasn't given you know he wasn't given appropriate directions <laughs> I, if i drank that stuff straight it would be like drinking salt water out of the ocean kind of yeah, right <laughs> yeah you throw up so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, and then Dom did some research and found, yeah, it raises the blood ketones and whatnot. And, um, and we did a patent together. You know, I had an idea, you know, how we patent this? How we patent this? You can't just patent the salts and whatnot. And I said, let's combine it with MCT, see what, see what happens. And, you know, we found some results that, uh, you know, that looked like there were some significant changes there. And then there was a patent um, applied for with that. And that's a, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. <laughs> I just, that's a mess. I don't want to go down. There. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> the, what are the most interesting applications of exogenous ketones? Because I've used it while fasting. I've used it while just making the transition to ketosis to make it a little easier uh -huh. as you're going through that very grumpy gray zone. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it effectively alleviates any of what people might call keto flu for me. Uh, I know a lot of endurance athletes use it. Uh, or take it prior to aerobic workouts. Like, what what are the most interesting applications in your mind of uh, of these exogenous ketones? First and foremost, endurance athletes, and the many teams at the Tour de France 
Tour de France, sorry, <laughs> France, um, we're uh, utilizing these ketones, whether they be salts or the stuff, the uh, the monoester, the Clark, uh, Karen and Clark, uh, Richard Veets. I don't know if you know their BHB mm-hmm. ester. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I, I know that the, the one, the team that won was, they had actually an exclusive contract. They denied taking it, but there were, you know, I, I, the writing's on the wall. I have all these messages everywhere, but, but, um, but there are also people that were, had, uh, that were on ketogenic diets and also taking exogenous ketones. I mean, keeping their levels up in the range of five millimoles per liter. That's up there. Yeah, it's up there. And, they had, you know, they obviously, that's not an easy thing to do. So they wouldn't be putting themselves through all that suffering if they weren't getting the results. And they were getting the results. And I, I've also had Ironman people, uh, uh, MMA people that, that love it, that use it. Um, what, certainly if. I'm sorry, go ahead. Certainly if you are. Avoiding carbs, if you are on a ketogenic diet and you want to go to the gym and, you know, normally people that are, that are on regular diets, you know, they'll drink some carbs before or during their workout, you know, because your body's going to burn up carbs and you need to replenish to keep your blood sugar up and whatnot. But if you're on a ketogenic diet, your body's not using carbs really. It's using ketones. So you're going to go in that gym and you're going to start working out and your ketones are going to be used up really quickly and, and you're going to tank. So, so if you are uh, in ketosis and you need something during your workout, you drink a, uh, exogenous ketones and, you, and it'll be like drinking carbs. I mean, you'll feel your brain will be energized, your body will be, be energized. You won't tank. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, people that I mean, I've given it to people that you know are like, oh, yeah, I, I'm on the ketogenic diet, and I can you know, work out. I feel like crap. To try this, and they're like, wow, you know, I didn't get tired, and you know, my body, you know. Had all the fuel it needed. Yeah, and for for me also, just on day one or two of converting from carbohydrate dependent to fat adapted, trying to get to at least say before I hit about one point five millimolars, uh, if I'm if I have to do an interview or something like that, then I'll just uh, take a, a serving of the ketocana fifteen twenty minutes before I'm set to start the interview and. Uh, I've been really impressed. The other other particular types of people who should not take it, or who should get some type of supervision or permission from uh, their, uh, you know, GP or whatever to to consume it. Is it contraindicated with anything? Um, the BHB part, uh, I I don't I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean they're. People that are diabetics can go into diabetic ketoacidosis, but that's a special condition, and and I don't think this little bit of ketones is going to like exacerbate that or anything. Uh, but if you are uh, some of these products, 
the the uh, sodium load is it's not really really high. I mean, you can have a pizza and have you know five or ten times the amount of sodium, but but if you're on a sodium restricted diet, you have to take that in, into consideration. Right. But other than but other than that, I I don't think there's any problem. What uh, what makes you different in the world that you've inhabited up to this point? I mean, in the creation of these different things, in the the creative problem solving, uh, coming up with THG, et cetera. If you, if you kind of look back, why are, what are the things that make you as good at it as you are? Because there are a lot of, I mean, a lot of folks trying to do these things, but you've had an incredible amount of, of uh, creative success. Well, when I got started in this whole thing would be the early 90s. There was no internet back then. There was, like I said, there was chem abstracts, which are this endless volume of of large books with extremely small writing that you'd have to cross-reference, and they were very, very hard to understand. And I learned to understand these things and they'd look up articles and I had the patience to drive to a library to here to there, find these things. And I learned how to research in a very primitive way. And I learned the patience of researching and I got a head start um, before anyone else started to be, you know, to kind of start to do what I, what I was already doing. And um, there's a lot of researchers out there that, yeah, sure, they, they can research and they can find, oh, a study that this does that, that does this, but can't, do they actually have a lab? Can they actually make this stuff? Can they actually test the product to see if it really is what it is? Um, I've also developed a, a, a certain intuition that tells me if something is worth exploring more or not. And that that depends upon a lot of things. It depends upon the journal. Well, it's not really intuition. It's, probably, it's actually logical. <laughs> you know, it depends upon the impact factor of the journal it's published in. You know, are, are there other publications by, you know, unrelated authors or whatnot? Is there a plausible mechanism? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think it's just a lot of experience and just an, an affinity for for this kind of thing. When do your best ideas tend to come to you? Is is there any pattern to it? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times um, I'm sort of a I'm not a consistent producer. My mind tends to go through periods of where I just I'm not creative. I'm frustrated. Um, I, I, I don't feel as though anything's going to happen or whatnot. And then I'll come across something and then I'll get a spurt of energy and creativity and all these things will come out. Sometimes, you know, I'm laying in bed trying to go to sleep and I'm like, I think of four or five different things and I'm like, wow, 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 you know? And then I, um, try to remember what they were (laughs) and I should write them down. But um, and then I work on them, you know. It's I guess that's uh, not unheard of. Do you uh, do you have any particular morning routines 
that you find helpful? I mean, aside from the, the, the usual, I mean, do you wake up? It sounds like you wake up on the early side. What is it? When do you, what time do you wake up and what does the first say hour and a half of your day look like? Well, if I go to the gym, I'll wake up at five. Um, first thing I do is I make my coffee. How do you make your coffee? I just make it with a coffee maker. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you, you just drink I black coffee? Cre- no, I put cream in it and some Splenda. I, I don't put any butter in it or anything like that because I I do it before I work out and then, and then, and then nothing against bulletproof coffee and everything, but I find it to be a little heavy on my stomach <laughs> if I go into a gym. You might also have. Higher disaster pants potential. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't. No MCTs before the gym, for sure. Okay, and then uh, what is your what does your workout routine look like? Or like well, on, on a weekly um, basis or whatever you happen to be doing now. Well, as far as let me start with, I prepare my workout drink, which is um, I have this stuff. My friend um, is a trainer. His name is Ian Danny. He has a product called Amino Matrix. This company is called Optimum EFX. It's very expensive, but since we, I've worked with him, we make some of his products. I get it for free, but it's basically uh, a full-spectrum essential amino acids that's enriched in branch-chain amino acids with uh, some other things thrown in there, alpha-lipoic acid, uh, citrulline malate, and a few other things. And I mix that with about 45 mils of Ketoforce which is the stuff you're not supposed to drink straight like Peter did. <laughs> so if you mix it with Amino Matrix, which is very tart, it, it, um, it buffers the alkalinity of the keto force and it ends up tasting quite, quite good. So I drink a little bit of that. I take it to the gym. Um, lately I work out maybe three to four times a week. Uh, sometimes, you know, if I feel... I'm, I'm motivated to really get into, you know, extra good shape. I'll work out more. Um, however, I usually combine, uh, I do legs and arms in the same day a lot and, um, chest and back and then shoulders, abs, uh, and I mix it up sometimes. Uh, and I, and I do cardio. I, I don't, I haven't gotten into a lot of the um, the kettlebell or or some of the the uh, athletic type of you know different kind of things metabolic conditioning stuff. Well, yeah. Well, some of those, um, yeah, 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 exactly. The which uh, I would like to do, but you know, I just um, I just don't have the time to learn it all. I just, I, I just don't, I'm, I'm an old dog. You can't teach me. <laughs> so, so speaking of old dogs, uh, are, do you have any, uh, how are you thinking about longevity or, ex, or extending lifespan? Is that a, is that a high priority or do you not spend a lot of your brain cycles on it? And if you do think about it, what do you think are promising? Well, I worry about my health over the next year or five or 10 years. Um, you know, I go to the doctor and sometimes I have abnormal blood values or whatnot, and I don't know what's going on there. And I worry about that. Um, 
because I don't want to come down with any sort of condition that's that's going to knock me out or anything like that. I worry about, you know, cancer and all that stuff. I'm not worrying about whether I live to be 85 or 105. That's that's not why worry about that at this point. Um I'm worried about quality of life in the immediate future. Um I've been thinking about taking I was taking metformin for a while. I stopped. You know, sometimes it upsets my stomach, but I've read a lot of research on it, and it seems to be maybe the most promising of the uh, uh, anti-aging uh, drugs out there. And yeah, well, it is. Uh, it does seem to have a fair amount of of interesting data behind it. Um, yeah, rapamycin is interesting too. I, I ha- or I mean, that entire kind of class. But um, I haven't I haven't taken either at this point. I don't know for whatever reason. I don't know why it makes me so. I have so much trepidation about it. I guess it's because I feel like once you're on it, you probably, if you're taking it with the explicit purpose of extending longevity, um, it seems like once once you're signed up, you're signed up. Uh, unless some type of contradictory data comes out against it, uh, against the efficacy or indicating side effects. Uh, I'm going to switch things up just a little bit because I know that um, you are in a different time zone and I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, I have a couple of what what I would call rapid-fire questions. Answers don't have to be short. They can be short or long. But when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Hmm. Successful. I guess Bill Gates, um, not so much. I mean, he's financially successful, but he's also become a, uh, you know, uh, quite a philanthropist. Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's done a lot of good things. He, he's not just made a lot of money, but he's also, um, put a lot of effort into making the world a better place. And I, I think he seems to be a, psychologically and it, you know, feels good about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any particular book or books that you've given a lot as a gift? As a gift, I've, I've received books as gifts. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've, I've given my, I gave my mother, uh, the book, Kennedy book by, uh, I think it was Chris Matthews, the guy from MSNBC. Mm-hmm. Cause I know she loved Kennedy. She met Kennedy at his inauguration. It was a w- weird story, but, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but one of my favorite books is, um, is by a author named Jared Diamond and it's called Guns, Germs and Steel. Guns, Guns Germs and Steel. Yep. Yeah, I read that. That really gave a, a big eye opening on on um, why certain people of the world are more advanced than others, and why you know people behave a certain way, and and as opposed to just genetics and oh, this person's smarter because they're this or that. It, it this is so many aspects to it. it, it um, it was quite. It got to be quite a, a scholarly f- uh, feat, though. Near the end, the book was, uh, you know, he, he was quite detailed. Uh, what are the most 
common misconceptions about you? Or is there anything that you would like to clear up in any, in any way? Uh, well, I used to have a persona on the internet as, as being short tempered and arrogant. And, and, uh, I have a, a sarcasm that doesn't always come across on, in the written word so well. And I've kind of toned that down, but there's still a lot of people that, uh, maybe they just want to believe that I'm a jerk. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I don't get, I don't get out and travel and go to shows, go to conferences nearly as much as I, I should. And, and I know I really should because I'm kind of a recluse when it comes to that. Cause I know, you know, a lot of my colleagues are, they're here and there and everywhere and everyone's meeting each other. And, and I feel as though everything's happening. I'm being left behind. Um, so I'm going to, this year, I'm going to try to change all that. But, but, but I mean, you know, I run a business here or, or one of the people that run a business here that we, we do production. We have to be testing every batch and, and whatnot. And, and, um, I, I have to be here. So it, it makes it kind of hard. I think you and I have a lot of shared DNA in that department where I can pretend for very brief periods of time to be an extrovert, but I find it very exhausting. So I, that's part of the reason that I'm cutting back significantly on all of the shows and conferences and whatnot that I attend this year because I just find it extremely draining. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you also end up being reactive, right? In the sense that when you're in the, in the, in the cave, working on production. I mean, you can, I, I would imagine it's easier to set your priorities and get less distracted by shiny objects than if you're out and about being bombarded by all of these inputs at a conference. I mean, I, 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 it's been a long time since I've been in that world, but that's what I would imagine to be the case. Uh, what, uh, what advice would you give your 30 year old self? And maybe you could place where you were, what you were doing at the time. 30 years old is when I moved out here. I, I would say, don't listen to that Stan Antosh guy. <laughs> Stay the hell away from him. Cause, cause he really, you know, there was like two or three years where I could have jumped ahead a lot quicker if it weren't, wouldn't been for him. Um, it's, it's hard to say. I, I would, uh, I mean, if I knew all the stuff I knew right now, I would just say, "Hey, I know how to make this." I'd make it. You can't say that, you know. Right, right. It's you know, like you buying Apple. It, yeah, right. It's like, well, if I knew then what I knew now, right? It's just an unfair question. It's just, uh, uh, you mean like philosophically, as far as yeah. d demeanor and all that goes, well, anything, and anything. It's just it's a wide open question, but uh, but we can we can also uh, table that one for now. I, I would I would be. I would um be more patient with people and and not um you know on on the internet and and whatnot it was, in, in person i you know I was always good and everything but but um you know I kind of grew my reputation on on the internet and i would become impatient and belittle people and and sort of if they 
and whatnot. And, and some people thought it was really funny, but but it caught it, it did turn a lot of people off. And and I don't, you know, I I'm ashamed of that. It's it's not who I am. So there's a, and this is just because it's it's so topical. I thought I want to at least bring it up, and we don't have to discuss it. But there's a current scandal that's been discussed pretty widely about um, Delta two. Do you want, do you have any interest in, in commenting on that or, or would you prefer to just leave that bay for the moment? No, that's, that's interesting. They, um, that all came about with, um, yeah. And if you could catch people up who are not just give people some context for those who don't aren't familiar. Oh, I wish I had that guy's name. Um, well, the whole thing came about with the, the, the doctor in Indianapolis that, um, was prescribing growth hormone to his wife. And I guess a couple of years after someone went to work for that organization and he heard that about that. And, um, I don't know, I can't really remember, but Al Jazeera did a undercover thing and they found about this guy. But part of what this guy was also doing was selling this stuff called Delta two which was a um, a uh, anabolic steroid that was never marketed. Um, and I heard a lot of people talking about it. For instance, they asked Victor Conti about it, and Victor uh, did, doesn't know what it is. Obviously, you know, he said it was no good, it was weak or whatnot. And it's actually something that I made uh, back in the early 2000s. And tried it out it's very difficult it's weird stuff to make because it turns into like fiberglass and expands you can't filter it and you have to make it into an acetate but what whatever that's all chemistry stuff but i made it into a spray and um i was thinking about selling this as a supplement I never gave this to athletes as, you know, undetectable type thing or anything like that. It's actually a, a pheromone that uh, elephants, female Asian elephants, tend to tend to excrete in their pee in very large amounts at certain times of the month. It's <laughs> strange. <laughs> and it's also found in human sweat, believe it or not. I think your the uh, bacteria in your human sweat take some of your endogenous hormones like androsterone, which are metabolites, and, and they convert it into this – this Delta two, but uh, I ended up uh, making it into just for a couple of people to try, and not athletes or anything like that, but into a uh, uh, oil-based injectable, the 100 milligrams per milliliter, and that was based upon uh, um, some studies that were done that showed that the stuff actually was quite potent. It was pretty much equal, equal, equal potent to testosterone milligram per milligram, but not as androgenic. And the people that tried it, they liked it, you know, very much and whatnot. And, um, that kind of came and went and, and never bothered with that. But, um, my guess is that, you know, some of the people that tried it or got around and, Someone else got it made and did the same thing and then started – this guy was one of them, started giving it to athletes years after. And I, and I – in retrospect, I think I heard 
about this stuff being given to athletes year a few years back, but didn't believe it because I didn't think that the drug testing organizations would not be able to find it. I thought it would be way too easy, but maybe not. But um, it was just interesting because I read about it and I said, oh, man, that's that stuff I fooled around with. It's old news from 2001. And then I see Victor saying it's no good. And I'm like, and Victor's saying it's a pro-hormone, it's oral. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. It's by injection as the acetate, it's very effective. It is. Delta two. What what are other drugs that or molecules that you think we'll be hearing more about in the next few years in the media? Right? So maybe they maybe they've been around for a long time, maybe they're new. What types of maybe re, I'll rephrase it, just like performance enhancing drugs or or therapies do you think we'll be hearing more about in the next few years? Hmm. Well, a lot of the most promising ones are have to do with uh, gene therapy, and that's those have been around for a long time, and they don't seem to go anywhere. There's a lot of safety concerns. I can't think of any actual small molecule or peptide drugs that are you just inject that that um, that do a heck, a heck of a lot. Um, that's a good question, but but one I did talk to someone from ESPN not too long ago, and he asked me a question about what what do you what do you what do I think is going on? You know, what is the most advanced thing that's going on that you think? And I say, well, I always had a suspicion that the Chinese may um, be using gene therapy. And what what they could do is that they could actually probably engineer um, embryos, um, probably in cert- certain genes, to that express certain growth factors uh, or repress certain other genes or, or whatnot, and these kids can grow up to be superhumans, and that and that could have happened as far back as you know mid to late nineties and those super kids could be coming of age right now and competing. And I've seen some, some of these, these Chinese athletes that, that, uh, that just kind of, uh, you know, they don't make any sense. You know, they, they look like the, the bully whippets that have the myostatin inhibition. <laughs> right, right. And at the same time, they have completely smooth skin and, you know, there's no androgens going on. You know what I mean? It's this sort of yeah, puzzling, uh, puzzling, puzzling combination of characteristics. Yeah. Do you have any opinion? Uh, and I don't. I'm getting pretty deep in the uh, my ignorance pool here. But uh, SARMs, uh, you know, like this selective androgen receptor modulators, uh, is there is there any there there or is the, is is that that's just a, a I mean it's an acronym that I've heard kind of thrown around a bit recently. Is uh, do you have any any familiarity with those or thoughts on those? Yeah, I have a funny anecdote about those, and then I'll I'll um, tell you my my thoughts. But the guy that shares my lab right now, he used to work be a salesman for another chemical company in town that we had done some work with, and they would make. They would make uh, drugs, um, small amounts for research, for 
uh, research for other drug companies. They were basically a, a contract synthesis place. And they made thousands of SARMs, SARM candidates. And there was one that was looked amazing on paper. And they gave it to the rats, and within a day, all the rats were dead. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so that just shows you that something that works in vitro, you don't know what's going to happen. But but as far as SARMs go, um, they're, they're basically a uh, – they're basically trying to do the same thing that androgenic anabolic steroids do. Uh, they know a lot more about the mechanisms from the receptor to the nucleus and uh, everything that happens in between. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of events, um, chemical molecular events that, that happen there that, that can determine whether a compound is, is potent or whether it's selective in a, in a certain cell or not. And so they know a lot more and they have molecular modeling where they're able to, you know, come up with theoretical compounds to say, well, this attaches to that. Well, that, that, and then they find a, 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 like a custom synthesis place to make the molecule. And then, you know, they try it on the rats and whatnot. So it is, um, they're basically trying to – plus they're not confined to the steroid structure because these structures are, are so divergent. They, they, they're completely different looking. Yet they all will combine some way to the androgen receptor. So they're not confined by any one structure. And, and so there's thousands and thousands of possibilities out there. However, they still have yet to – to eliminate the androgenic anabolic um, separation. They have yet to eliminate the hepatotoxicity, uh, basically the, uh, the um, cholesterol. The liver and, issues, yeah. Yeah, the AST, AL, ALT enzymes. What do you mean by the, uh, the, the anabolic androgenic separation? Oh, just just re- reducing but, the androgenic effect. Yeah, yeah they'll never, you'll never get zero androgenic 100% anabolic at any dose they are they've gotten very good separation uh, i don't know how much better i mean if it's that much better than say a primabolin or whatnot but they do find that at higher dosages like i said before the androgenic effects do start creeping up however but they um i think there are doing better and whatnot but then they and they certainly haven't done anything about the um uh hpta shutdown which basically means shutting down your body's own testosterone production they they, that these compounds still still will do that Mm -hmm. so there's no there's no great improvement there it's it's sort of like you know and you know better anabolic steroids but they're not they're still in the same thing, pretty much. Yeah, they're not not the breakthrough that, at least at this point, that a lot of people would would hope them to be. Uh, do you have? Are there any molecules? And I'll ask just a few more questions. Are there any particular molecules to you that you think are exceptionally beautiful or elegant? Are there any that just really <laughs> stick out to you? <laughs> As far as how they look on paper, yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, just like I, there are, and I, the reason I ask it seems like a weird question, and it might not, might be a bad question, but there are. I know mathematicians, for instance, who find certain equations just to be 
very elegant to them. They're like, wow. All right. Like that does so much with so little, I would call that beautiful. Right. So I, I don't know if that exists in, in your world of chemistry. Uh, it, but if it's, if it's not something you think about, then it's not, uh, there doesn't have to be an answer to that question. I was just curious. Well, I wouldn't say a specific chemical structure, but there are certain, certain compounds which crystallize beautifully. Um, I don't remember what it was. I, I was working with something. And by crystallize, I mean a lot of times you pur- purify things by um, heating them up in a solvent or solvent mixture until you reach um, the point where it goes clear. I mean, it's cloudy and it gets hot enough. You know, things are more soluble when they get hot. It goes clear and then you let it sit and it cools down and then the pure chemical tends to sometimes crystallize and some things crystallize into these big, long needles and the needles get bigger and bigger than you have to. And that's what I find beautiful because that means that I have a pure compound and that makes me very happy. Now, when things don't crystallize, and sometimes they'll, they'll sit there and they'll turn into this nasty oil, that pisses me off. I don't like that. <laughs> so I love nice crystals. It, nothing makes me happier than, than nice crystals. <laughs> right. Well, on that note, uh, Patrick, this has, been, this has been a blast. I, I enjoy getting into the weeds. And, uh, you're constantly selling out of everything. So the, the best place for people to find the keto canna, uh, if they want to experiment with that is ketosports.com or is there a different place you would suggest they, they, they check out? Well, ketosports.com has the information. We yet to have a, uh, um, uh, the ability to sell off that page. So go to prototype nutrition, one word, prototype nutrition.com. That's where you can get the keto canna or the, um, or solic acid or, or there's, or, or you are spray. Um, and, uh, we all, we also have other products under the keto sports brand. They're all sold under the prototype site. We, um, we have a C8, uh, caprylic acid product, which is a, a MCT. That's an, um, only the C8, which is the best M- MCT. Um, we have a uh, combination coconut and ghee product that's good for cooking. That's keto-friendly. Um, we're about to introduce a product that um, that help, that's reduces blood glucose by inhibiting um, absorption from intestine and uh, speeding up elimination of glucose through the urine. Huh. Which will which will cause uh, your blood sugar to drop and will help you reach ketosis a lot quicker. That's that's very interesting. Well, I would like to. <laughs> I will go check that out right now. That's very very interesting. Well, there's that. there's been studies on it. It's there's there's enough safety data on it. I don't want to give away exactly what it is. No, but we, no, no, no. We, we have the material here. We just um, having trouble tabling it. We have to be. Do some granulation work, but it, that should. But by the time this interview comes out, the product, I mean, but this product will probably be available. So fantastic! Well, then people can check it out, prototypenutrition.com. and uh, of course, as always, everybody, uh, you will be able to check out plenty in the show notes, all the links, everything else at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash 
podcast. Uh, is there any, are there any other sites? Uh, and of course I'll put these in the show notes as well, but any, any place that you would encourage people to see what you're up to, uh, or find you online? Well, I have patrickarnoldblog.com. I don't, uh, keep it updated much lately, but I probably have about 30, 40 articles from the past. A lot of them pretty unique stuff, you, you know, that you wouldn't find anywhere else. Perfect. Uh, I have a Facebook page, but that's mostly for just being a wise ass. So. <laughs> Which, all right, so people can can uh, <laughs> can find you on on the Facebook, and I'll get I'll get that from you as well. Is there is it a, is it a fan page or is it just a personal page? It's it's just a personal page, but we also have um, we also have well we also have a company called E Farm Nutrition, uh, which I which it's not been a big priority lately, but they have a uh, Facebook page and Prototype Nutrition as a Facebook page. I think that's about it. That's great. Well, I'll list everything out. And, uh, Patrick, there are lots of, of, of rabbit holes we could go down. Of course. <laughs> I know. Maybe we'll do around two with, with some additional rabbit holes, but thank you so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. 10. Thanks. And, uh, everybody listening as always, Thank you, and until next time, uh, work smart, play often, and experiment well. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. And until next time, thank you for listening.